1 Kings 19, if you're not already there. You know, one thing that always fascinates me as I look through the scriptures is to see how God deals with his servants, servants that he's appointed, servants that he's chosen to, to, be, to do a certain job, like the prophet Elijah, for example. When they encounter problems or difficulties, to see how he deals with them. When servants like Elijah get derailed from their ministry, it's fascinating to me to see how God deals with those kind of people. When they become fearful or frustrated, or anybody that does the work of God, who serves him, who loves him, who's giving their best for him, they become frustrated in the ministry, with the ministry itself I'm talking about, or fearful of things, or anxious, or worried, or even downright disobedient. You know, it's interesting to see how God deals with those people at that time. Sometimes he's got to deal more severely with people than at other times, as he sees fit, of course. Oftentimes, though, he is gentle with us. He is patient with us. And, and how he deals with people who go off track for one reason or another. Many times, many are the times that God seeks to encourage his servants, especially when they are very discouraged in the ministry I'm talking about. You think of Moses who didn't even want to lead Israel. And the people under his care, God put him in charge of Israel, under his care, they're discontented, they're complaining all the time, they're murmuring all the time, they're grumbling all the time. Moses gets discouraged with that ministry. But the Lord continues to encourage him along the way. You think of David when Saul, uh, David, God was, uh, David was God's chosen uh, man to be the next king, and, and yet what is happening? Saul has him on the run, he's trying to kill him. David is getting discouraged. He thinks of uh, going to Philistia and just giving up, basically. And along comes Jonathan, the son of Saul, 1 Samuel 23. And it says there, he goes out of his way to see David, and, he, and it says there, he strengthened his hand in God. He strengthened his hand in God. So God encourages David with Jonathan. What about Jonah? Jonah doesn't even want to go to Nineveh, has no desire to go there. He does his best to go the opposite way. But does the Lord give up on him? No. Why? Because God wants Jonah in particular to do this assignment. He wants his prophet, and Jonah was a prophet, to do this. And he has to take him through a storm. He's got to take him through uh, the great fish. He's got to take him through his uh, deal with his own anger, the own anger of the prophet. And yet the Lord never, he sticks with him the whole time. It's fascinating. Uh, after the resurrection, Thomas doesn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, does the Lord disqualify him for the ministry at that point? Well, you don't believe, so you're out. No, he doesn't do that. He says, he singles him out in particular, and he says, reach here with your finger and touch my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be believing, or do not rather be unbelieving, but believing. And we could go on and on. The list of God's hurting, discouraged, frustrated, angry, uh, depressed servants but the Lord encourages them, and he cares for them, and he loves them anyway. Now, the circles I ran in for some years, I was led to believe that, you know, if you mess up, God's going to zap you, right? I, and, I, and I waited for the hammer to drop. I was always waiting for the God's hammer to drop on me because I'm like, I messed up, so I deserve the hammer. I expect it to happen any, any second now. And that was my thought process for long, and it still can be if I'm not careful. I was taught to think that way. The Lord doesn't work that way, though. It doesn't work. Now, he may have to discipline us for our sin. That's a possibility but, and, and a probability, but I think the usual procedure for God is to deal with his servants who are discouraged or downhearted in a gentle and patient way. He knows who we are. 
He knows we are but dust, as the psalm says. He is well acquainted with the fact that we are nothing more than poor, demented, yes, weak, sinful individuals who cannot survive a second outside of his grace. He knows that about it. He's our Father in heaven. And so when, be, when we become discouraged, he seeks to encourage us. Encourage us. He loves This is similar to what Mike was saying this morning. I love John 13, 1. John 13, 1, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them all the way to the end, it says. And he had to deal with some things with his, his apostles. But the Lord loves and cares for his people. If, 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 if you're striving to serve the Lord with all your heart, you're trying to give it your best shot, you're trusting in him, do you think he's going to be angry with you if you get discouraged serving him? you think he's going to be angry? Even to the point of wanting to die, Elijah wanted to die. you think he's going to get angry about that, or do you think he's going to try to encourage you? Elijah was a man who loved the Lord, no doubt about it at all, a man who served the Lord. But because he was a man with a nature like ours, James chapter 5, right, he got discouraged. He got discouraged serving the Lord. He feels like he's getting nowhere with this nation of idolaters, and, yet, and so he gets discouraged. So the Lord will turn his personal attention to Elijah for a while. We've been talking about Israel, and, and God is using Elijah to speak to Israel. But now that's changing for the time being. God is going to direct his full attention to Elijah, his prophet, who's discouraged. Tonight we'll begin to find out how the Lord deals with his discouraged prophets. We're going to begin to find out because we're not going to end it tonight. This is a, it's going to be continued. There are three main characters in chapter 19. We said a couple of weeks ago when we started this. First, we encounter a threatening queen. Look at verses 1 and 2. Chapter 19, a threatening queen. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. He's, he's threatening him. Secondly, we see a discouraged prophet. Look at verse 3. He was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. This is the great prophet Elijah. And he said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Things are so bad in Elijah's view, in his mind, that he has a death wish. He wants to die. He's tired of the whole thing. He feels like an absolute failure. He says, I've, I've, I've failed miserably. I'm no better than my father's. This is an all-time low, low for Elijah. He's ready to quit. But that brings us to our third main character in this chapter, and that is a loving God. A loving God, found in verses 5 to 21. God will show his love to Elijah, his prophet, personally. Now, how will he do that? Well, I, I think there are five ways in which he does that. Tonight, we'll only cover one and a half or so. First is this. The Lord ministers to Elijah's physical needs. That is the first way he shows his love for Elijah. He ministers to his physical needs. Look at verse 5, 5 through 8. He lay down, Elijah did, and he slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake uh, baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank 
and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Elijah has his physical needs ministered to. Now, he's traveled a long way at this point. It's 100 miles from Jezreel, where Jezebel in that area lives, to Beersheba in the south. We saw, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, uh, south of Israel. He travels 100 miles. He leaves his servant uh, there in Beersheba. Then he walks about another day into the desert by himself, goes into the desert. I'm sure he's hot from the sun glaring down on him. And so what does he do? He seeks the, the shade of a juniper tree. Juniper tree grows in the desert there to about 10 feet in height. And as I said a couple weeks ago, juniper tree in the desert there is for, the, is for shade by day and to keep uh, winds from, from shelter by night from the winds. At first, he sits under the tree, and then he lies down, it says, under that tree. Because why? He's absolutely exhausted. He's been walking forever here. That's understandable. He's exhausted. He desperately, desperately needs his rest. And he cannot help but fall asleep. And the Lord lets him do just that. He lets him sleep. The Lord doesn't rebuke him. The Lord doesn't say, you know, what are you doing down there, Elijah? Get up. Lying down on the job. I've got a nation that needs you. He doesn't say any of that. Some commentators seem to think that he should have. He lets him rest instead. Now, we're designed to need daily rest. There's a time uh, for every season. There's a time for rest. I've known Christians who seem to think that taking care of your health is some kind of sin or idolatry. They think it's, I've heard, heard them say that. And I'm, fortunately, the Lord doesn't think that way. He doesn't think that way. That's all I'm concerned about, okay? Uh, you know, I, I know it's true. I'd rather burn out, uh, I'd rather rust, uh, burn out, rather, as they say, rather than rust out. I agree with that. But how about we find a happy medium? How about we don't do either? I think of uh, Murray McShane, Robert Murray McShane, who died at the age of 29, who said this. He said, uh, God has, he said, alas, God has given me a message, and a, and a, mes a messenger, I'm the messenger. He's given me a message to deliver, a horse to deliver it on. I've killed the horse, and now I can't deliver the message. What he was saying was, my health is shot, and, and he died. Now, God takes us out when he wants us to. I understand all that. Nevertheless, nothing wrong with taking care of your health. When Jesus saw his disciples weary in Mark 6.31, what does he say? He says, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. This is the master talking to his disciples. Sometimes that's necessary. He goes on and he says, and it says in, the, in Mark there, there were many coming and going. They did not even have time to eat. These guys doing the work in the ministry, the disciples with Jesus, they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. You know, sometimes people get discouraged in the ministry because they're worn out, they're tired, and they need to get away, they need to rest, nothing wrong with that. Spurgeon said, the master knows better than to exhaust his servants. Rest time is not waste time, it's economy to gather fresh strength. Now, this is, you know, the Lord's care for Elijah, as you, look in the, as you think about verses 5 to 8, it's very tender, very comforting. The way he cares for his servant, who's very discouraged to the point of wanting to die, he doesn't browbeat him. You know, I love the, uh, the verse, Psalm 127, verse 2. It says, for he, for the Lord, gives to his beloved sleep. He gives to his beloved sleep. Elijah was the beloved of God. Without a doubt, he was. And God lets him rest because this is the first thing he needs. Look at verse 5 again, just to catch the spirit of this verse. Think about this, how the Lord is dealing with him gently. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree. Behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise and eat. Do you know how much the Lord loved Elijah? He sent an angel to minister him. 
to him. An angel. Do you believe in angels? Well, I do. I, I believe what the Bible says about angels. The world has a strange view. They have this syrupy view of angels and convoluted view of angels, strange view of angels, but I believe what the scripture says. The biblical view is this. Angels are God's servants. They do his bidding. They do what he wants them to do. He calls them his ministers, his servants in, in Hebrews 1.7. Hebrews 1.14, the question is asked concerning the angels, are they not all ministering spirits, serving spirits, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? We don't think about that ministry, do we? we you know, the world has a strange view of angels, like I said, but God has given us this ministry as well. Now, we don't see angels. They're unnoticed. We don't know what's we don't know what's happening with, with all that, but God, this is another ministry God has blessed us with. He's blessed us with many ministries, ministry of the Holy Spirit Mike talked about this morning. How about the ministry of angels as ministering spirits sent to minister to those who are heirs of salvation? That's us. God has blessed us this way. Elijah is visited by an angel here. That's what it says in verse 5, right? An angel? But look at verse 7. You'll see that it's not just any angel. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him. Elijah not only gets an angelic visit, but this is none other than the angel of the Lord. Elijah may be ready to give up on his ministry to Israel, but the Lord is not ready to give up on Elijah, his prophet. He sends this angel, special angel, for this purpose. And what does the angel of the Lord do for him? He feeds him. Look at that. A meal's been re made ready for Elijah. The stones are still hot on which it was cooked. Still hot from, the, from how, they, how that was made. I don't know how it was made. It's a home-cooked meal, though, kind of like your mom would make. Uh, similar to what happened in chapter 17, the account of the widow. Remember that? Elijah asks for some water in a jar, and he asks for some bread cakes in particular. Chapter 17, he gets the same meal here in the desert. Same meal prepared by this angel of the Lord. Now, where did this food come from? In the, in the well into the desert. Obviously, God supplies this food, just like he did for Israel. For, for all those years they were in the wilderness, the manna from heaven, God always supplies the needs of his people, especially when they can't, when they can't get, it, get to it. He supplies their needs. You know, as I was reading this, I was thinking a parallel struck me in the New Testament, John chapter 21. John 21, the disciples had gone fishing and caught nothing. Jesus comes and he says, Cast your net on the right side of the boat, and they did. And, they, and, they, and because they did, they had such a great catch of fish, they could hardly bring it in. But while they're dragging their net of, uh, full of fish into the land, and they go on land, they, they, they haven't got to the fish to land yet, okay? They're getting on land with the net of fish. It says in John 21, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. That was the meal prepared by Jesus for them, and he invites them to eat breakfast. Come on, eat breakfast, guys. And he serves them, too. That is how the Lord encourages his servants. This is after the resurrection. Guess who was discouraged? Peter. Why was he discouraged? He had denied Christ three times. Wouldn't you be discouraged? He may be thinking it's all over with, right? God's going to zap me? Mentality, maybe? But then, then Jesus encourages his discouraged servant, Peter. He's a loving God. And he met, and in this case, he met the physical needs of the disciples before the spiritual needs, and he does that same thing for Elijah, by the way. He by the way, the Lord takes care of both our physical and spiritual needs. The same, the, both, both, in both cases, in both chapters, Elijah's tired. He's thirsty. He's worn out after his journey. He needs 
this sustenance. He needs rest. He needs food. He needs drink. And that's what he gets. That's what God knows he needs. And God gives it to him first. Now that, the Lord's compassionate. That's what I want you to emphasize to you tonight. The Lord loves his servants who serve him, who are, who are trusting him faithfully. He loves them. He loves you. Listen as I read Matthew 15, 32. Think of the compassion in Christ's voice as I, as I read this, Matthew 15, 32. Jesus calls disciples to him, and he said, I feel compassion for the people, he said. I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days, and they have nothing to eat. That's why he was compassionate. They have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, he says, lest they faint on the way. That's the compassion of Christ. Uh, he cares for the entire person. Well, Elijah lays down again to sleep due to his exhaustion. And after some time, the angel of the Lord wakes him again and feeds him again another meal. Why? Well, the angel of the Lord says, look at it. It says, arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. The journey is too great. What journey? What's he talking about, journey? Um, so far, all we've seen is Elijah kind of come to the desert. He's very discouraged. And now there's a journey being, being discussed. The fact of the matter is, Elijah is on a definite journey to a specific location. There's a journey in mind. I don't know when this was determined. I don't know if Elijah determined this at the beginning of his time to, to leave Jezreel. I don't know if, it was, if he decided to do this some way along the way. But somewhere along the way, he plans on going to Horeb, the mountain of God. He's not just frantically running away from Jezreel. There is a purpose in this. He leaves his servant in, Be in Beersheba in the south of Judah. He goes down to the desert, I believe, to meet alone with God. I think he's going there to meet alone with God. The angel of the Lord essentially authorizes this journey, or maybe he even planned it, or he is allowing him at least. We know God's sovereign over all things, of course, providentially sovereign. However, he essentially authorizes this when he says, eat up, you've got a long journey ahead of you. You're going to need your strength. Now, we're speaking of the Lord's love and care for Elijah. Do you remember how this section started, by the way? Uh, this business of God ministering to the physical needs of Elijah, how it started. It started with Elijah voicing his frustration in verse 4. He says, Oh, Lord, it's enough now. Take away my life, for I'm not better than my father's. And how did the Lord answer him? What does it say in verse 5? How did the Lord answer him? He didn't answer him. Didn't answer him at all. He just cares for his needs. He simply cares for, he says, nothing. He cares for his physical needs. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't chide him. He doesn't scold him. He did, none of that. He doesn't become angry with him. None of those things. He says, eat because the journey is too great for you. That is how the Lord deals with his servants who are zealous for his cause, but they get discouraged when people don't respond to their ministry, when people don't uh, respond to God, or maybe... They don't feel like their ministry is successful as they thought it should have been. How many times, Mike, have we thought this in the early days of this church? Sometimes think it now, by the way. I look out, and we look out, and we think, well, what, what's happening with these people? And where's so-and-so at? And what's happening with this individual and that individual? And we think those things. And when we first started, uh, we, we had a hard time having our own group show up, let alone anybody else, right? You remember those days? It can be discouraging, the work of the ministry. And when you preach the gospel to people and they don't respond, and they don't respond, and they don't respond, that can be discouraging if you're looking at it that, from that light. But the Lord deals with his servants lovingly. And this is something we can learn from this passage, how God deals with his discouraged servants. 
How do you parents deal with a child who becomes discouraged? Parents that are in their right mind I'm talking about, okay? We have a lot of crazy parents. Mike talked about a couple of them today. I was just, I was listening to what he was saying about this, and I thought, what in the world is wrong with these people? As he, as he was describing not feeding your children and so on. How do you parents, parents who know the Lord, how do you deal with your children when they're discouraged? You try to encourage them, don't you? You try to encourage them. That's how our Heavenly Father deals with us. It's the same thing. Psalm 103, verse 13. Just as a father has compassion on his children, listen to this, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, it says. He's got compassion on us. I love the next verse. The next verse says, for or next part of the verse, for he himself knows our frame. He knows our, he knows our form. He knows what our makeup is. He knows what we're made of. He knows who we are. He knows we're but dust. He knows that. And, he's, and he is mindful, it says, that we are but dust. You know, the Lord God formed us from the dust of the ground. He knows who we are. He knows our frailties. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our distresses, our discouragements, our failures. He knows all about us. He, we're not going to fool him in any way. If we get mad and angry and discouraged and so on, he understands all these things, okay? He knows how to deal with his discouraged uh, children who are faithfully serving him. He's he tries to encourage them. Now, what about the children of God who are not faithfully serving him? They're sinning against him. They're doing the wrong thing. They're not trying to serve him. Well, he might have to get the rod of correction out after us in that case. But sometimes a parent has to spank his children. Sometimes the parent has to encourage his children. But we have a wise heavenly father who knows how to deal with us in any situation. He knew how to deal with Elijah. For as far as he's concerned, Elijah eats and drinks what the angel of the Lord has provided for him, and he gets the rest he needs. Then it says he makes a 40-day journey all the way to the mountain, Horeb, the mountain of God. God used that food to sustain him for 40 days is what it says. Now, there's a couple of things I want to mention concerning this right here. Number one, God is constantly sustaining Elijah throughout his life. He's been doing it from the beginning of chapter 17. He, he let the ravens feed Elijah. He does it with the widow. He does it through the angel of the Lord. The Lord continues to care for his faithful prophet, right? And that, sh that speaks to God's faithfulness. It shows us that God is faithful. As we serve the Lord, we don't have to worry. Uh, we don't have to fear about these kind of things. God will take care of his people. Secondly, it reminds us of the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. As I read this, I thought about that. Matthew 4, verse 1 says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit in, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Both Jesus and Elijah go through their own peculiar temptations. Now, obviously, what Jesus went through is far greater than what anybody will go through. We know that. Uh, and will be tempted greater than anybody. But Elijah, nonetheless, has a serious conflict going on in his own soul. And it's a comfort to know, though, though we are tempted to try, Jesus understands. He's been through all this. Been through all this. He's endured all the sufferings like no one else ever has. And he's always, he was always successful. Hebrews 2.17 says this, Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, a merciful and faithful high priest, in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. What are we saying here? Jesus understands. He understands what you're going through. He knows it. He's been through 
far more than anybody has. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. See, the difference is when we're tempted, we often sin, right? When Jesus was tempted, he never sinned, but he understands. He took the full brunt of the temptation. He's sympathetic to our plight. Uh, just like the angel of the Lord was sympathetic to the plight of Elijah. By the way, many think that the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. It's hard not to see the parallel between the tempted and tried Elijah and the tempted and tried Jesus, uh, Messiah, rather, fasting 40 days and nights, both in the wilderness. By the way, the next time you're, you're, tempted, you're tempted and tried yourself, think of the Lord, who suffered greatly for you in life and death. Think of Hebrews 12.3. Consider him, consider Christ, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How do you serve the Lord in discouragement? You keep your eyes on Christ, right? You're discouraged by the things that are happening. You're discouraged by the ministry you're doing for the Lord, whatever it might be. And you're discouraged by these things. Keep your eyes on Christ. The question that naturally comes to mind, though, in verse 8 is this. Why is Elijah going to Horeb? First of all, what is Horeb, mountain of God? It's the same place as Mount, Mount Sinai. It's the place that God met Moses when he gave Moses the Ten Commandments. It's the place where God calls to Moses uh, from the burning bush in that same location. It's the place where God meets Moses after the Exodus. It's a special place in the narrative of Israel's history. It's where God gave Moses instruction and, and made a covenant with Israel. Don't break my covenant. I want to be your God. You're going to be my people. You're going to be my special people. And so we have another parallel. Not only Elijah and Jesus, but we have one with Moses and Elijah. As Moses met the Lord at Horeb, he will also meet Elijah at Horeb, same place, Mount Sinai. By the way, there's no mention of anybody else ever going to Horeb uh, since Moses went. But Elijah is making a journey all the way down to this place, and he's going to meet God. He's in a crisis. He needs to meet God. He's going to do this thing. Think, and think about the parallel, a couple of parallels between Elijah and Moses, by the way. Number one, both went without food for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses and Elijah I'm talking about now. We've already looked at Elijah and Jesus doing that, but Moses, it says, uh, Hebrews, uh, Exodus rather, 34, 28, Exodus 34, 28. So Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So just like God sustained Moses 40 days and 40 nights, he's sustaining Elijah in the same location. Not only that, both of them, Elijah and Moses, both of them witnessed idolatry. They both saw it. Elijah's been seeing it for years under Ahab. He's been, he participated in the showdown against the prophets of Baal. He's seen it firsthand and up close. He has seen the rejection of Jezebel and Ahab to that, to that uh, situation. No repentance from either one of them. That's why they're trying to kill him. And Moses had gone up to Mount Sinai to, to be alone with God as well and had been given the Ten Commandments. And what happened while he was there? What did the people do? They made a golden calf, right? They made an idol. And they said this, uh, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Israel had broken their covenant under Moses, just like they broke it under the ministry of Elijah the prophet. Both of them were prophets, by the way. Moses was a prophet, so was Elijah. Moses says in Deuteronomy 18:15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, he says. You're going to have a prophet raised up just like me among you from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. 
He's a prophet. But he points to a greater prophet. Who's that? Acts 3, Peter is preaching a sermon, and he calls on the people to repent. And he says that repent in order that he may send Jesus to Christ. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 18.15. Christ is the one who fulfills the prophecy of Moses. So you have two prophets here, Moses and Elijah, both witnessing the idolatry in Israel. And there's going to be more parallels in time to come here. But for now, let's focus on the loving God. Talking about God's love for his people, his servants, and he shows it in different ways to those who are discouraged. The first way he shows his love for Elijah is that he, he ministers to his physical needs. Secondly, the Lord invites Elijah to unburden his heart. He invites Elijah to unburden his heart, verses 9 and 10. Look at verse 9. Then he came there. Elijah came to Horeb, to Mount Sinai, made the trip. He gets there to a cave, it says, and he lodged there. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. By the way, in verse 9, the text actually says he came to the cave, not just a cave. That's all it says. Some people think that it's the same cave that Moses was in, the cleft of the rock that God hid him in in Exodus 33 when he passed before him and showed him his glory. I can't prove that. I can't, I can't prove that's the same cave. Some people think it is. Um, but anyway, he came to the cave and lodged there. And what do we see? But a familiar theme that emerges from all this, and that theme is the word of the Lord. That's what it says here in, in verse 9, the word of the Lord came to him. Now, how, how many times have we already seen this in the ministry of Elijah? We saw it in chapter 17, verse 2. We saw it in chapter 17, verse 8. We saw it in chapter 17, verse 16. We saw it in chapter 18, verse 1, and now we see it again. God spoke to Elijah. He's still speaking to Elijah. It's the same thing. Nothing's changed as far as that's concerned. And this time he asked him a question. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, did the Lord not know he was coming to Horeb? No, he knew that he knows everything, right? But according to verse 7, the angel of the Lord allowed him to go to Horeb, authorized it or something like that, right? The Lord knew it was going to happen. So why do you ask the question? Is it because he doesn't know why Elijah's there? No, again, he knows everything, right? He knows the motives of our hearts. He knows everything we're thinking. Is he rebuking Elijah with his question? Many think that he is. The problem I have with this, I think this is in the context of God encouraging Elijah, his prophet, who, by the way, has done everything God has said to do. This is hardly a guy who's just disobedient to God. He's done everything that God said to do. He's discouraged now. I think he's encouraging him. By the way, Elijah is not like an employee who doesn't you know, show up on time for work, doesn't work while he's there, grumbles about his wages he gets while he's at the same time not doing any work. He's not like that. He's a guy who obeys God consistently, Elijah is. I don't think this question is meant to rebuke Elijah. I think it's meant to allow him to unburden the true feelings of his soul. I think he's inviting him to unburden his soul before God. That's why he's out there on Mount Sinai. Throughout Scripture, the Lord invites us to do that. How many times do we see those verses, cast your burden upon the Lord, he'll sustain you. Uh, Come all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Uh, ask and it shall be given you, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you, casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. All these verses and more, he wants, he's, the Lord's always asking us to unburden our hearts to him. He wants Elijah, I believe, to unburden his heart. And so in verse 10, after all these events have taken place, after the 
after leaving Jezreel, after being threatened by Jezebel, after leaving his servant in Beersheba, after requesting to die, after making a long trip to Horeb, Elijah will finally at last unveil his reason for all this. Why is he doing all this? Well, think about the setting. He's alone with God in the wilderness. He's in a place where no one else is. Not another soul in sight for miles around. Nothing, no sounds from the city. No conversations of people talking. He's on a, solid, a solitary mountain alone with God. Uh, Moses was on that same mountain. And here, I think, is his reason for leaving and Israel to come out all this way. Verse 10, this is from his own mouth. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, I'm going to boil that down to a, a couple of statements in a minute here, what he's saying here. We're going to pick this up again next week, by the way. But here it is. Elijah has been extremely passionate for the cause of Yahweh. He's been beyond passionate. If you've read chapter 17 and 18, you know this. You know he's been extremely passionate for the cause of God, all to no avail, ultimately. As he says, Israel's forsaken the covenant of God as they did under Moses. Israel has torn down the altars upon which sacrifices should have been offered to, to Yahweh. They have killed God's prophets. Do you remember Jezebel killing the prophets of, of the Lord? They killed his prophets. And now they want to get rid of it. Elijah, in his view, there's nobody left. Elijah's very discouraged because the cause of God has been dishonored by the disobedience of Israel. That's why he's discouraged. He's discouraged. He's distraught because he loves the Lord with all his heart, totally zealous for God. He sees his nation crumbling spiritually. He sees it happening. And what he says is not from self-pity. It's not why he says this. He's, it's from a heart that wants to do, that more than anything, wants to glorify God. Can you hear his heart? He wants to glorify God. He's deadly serious about the things of God. He's deadly zealous for the Lord. You're listening to the words of a man who is one of the greatest prophets that ever lived, Elijah. His life is totally wrapped up in God. And so he says this as an answer. Now, we're going to analyze this next week, and, I'll, and I'll show how, we'll show how it affects us next week. I have much more to say about that. But for now, I want you tonight to think of this. I want you to think of how the Lord deals with those who serve him, how he loves us. You know, we as God's people take this for granted. We take the Lord for granted, don't we? I mean, he's there. I mean, he's supposed to be there for us, right? He's supposed to be there when we pray. We take him for granted, but we are blessed beyond measure. Think about it. Blessed beyond measure because we're serving the Lord. He's a good God, a loving God. He loves us. He blesses us with every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, Ephesians 1 says. He watches over us. He protects us. He takes care of us. He comforts us. All these things and many more. How many times every day do you run to the Lord and say, Lord, I need, you. I need your help? Again and again, right? He's always there. Paul is so taken with this thought of God's comfort. He says in 2 Corinthians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, just like he comforted Elijah, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts us so we can comfort other people with his comfort. You know, we live in an evil world, don't we? We minister to people who, are, who oftentimes are, as we were, lost in sin. 
dead in sin before God rescued us. We minister to people, we'll minister to people who will turn their backs on God. <clears throat> we will be disappointed in people, oftentimes, if we minister to them. We will be disappointed in ourselves. Some people may become apostates. You know, uh, there's been, I don't know why, a few times around here uh, in recent uh, months, there's been a book with the name Bart Ehrman on it. Very strange that would be sitting on our table in the back. Bart Ehrman was a guy who went to Moody Bible Institute years ago. Uh, and uh, he uh, went to uh, Princeton after that. Became a great scholar, by the way, a New Testament scholar. But be, he became an apostate, turned his back on the faith, left the faith. And now you know what he does? Teaches at University of North Carolina, and he goes around the country mocking God and the New Testament and saying there's a bunch of errors in the New Testament. Does uh, debates with James White, as a matter of fact. That's Bart Ehrman, a guy who used to know, who's, who claimed to know the Lord at Moody Bible Institute at one time. You're going to deal with people who are going to become apostates. Sometimes people may become angry at us for different reasons and leave the church. You know, we're going to get discouraged, aren't we, in the ministry? We're going to get down. What do we do at that moment? Remember that God loves us. He loves his servants. He loves people who love him. He loves people who are trying to serve him. Remember that. Remember that he ministers to our needs, our physical needs, our spiritual needs. Remember that. Remember that he invites us to, uh, to unburden our hearts to him. To, to pour out our hearts before him, as David did often in the Psalms, especially when we're discouraged. You don't have to remain discouraged. You don't have to, if you're discouraged tonight, you don't have to remain discouraged. You don't have to remain despondent in your circumstances. Go to the Lord, right? Go to the Lord, cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Cast all your burdens upon the Lord, for he'll sustain you. That is what he invites you to do. Don't try to carry the burdens by yourself. Don't do that. Take them to the Lord and rest in him. Why? Because he is a loving God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word of God tonight. We thank you for your message to Elijah tonight, the message to us as well. Pray we'll trust in you, Lord, love you, uh, serve you, knowing, Lord, that we can be encouraged by you always, encouraged by your word, finding our strength in God as David did, Lord. We pray we'll do that. We pray we'll look to you for encouragement every day. And we pray that you'll encourage our church, encourage the people in our church, to continue to serve you. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.